I remember Connie Stevens said one time, the secret of not getting old is stay plump. <laughs> oh, well, you know. But I have to tell you that there's been a certain amount of ha-ha-ha with some of the people that have told me about my weight all these years that now I'm smaller than they are. <laughs> you know, i got to be honest about that. But I've had the health problems, too. You know, and I found I told my doctor, I said, if I'm in such great damn health, why am I falling apart? And he said, well, you've abused your body for a long time. And he said, there are sometimes things that it would have happened anyway. And see, my mind is, well, if you lose weight and you get thin, then everything. Because see, don't you know thin people never have any problems? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then it, and it talks about we are people who would not usually mix. And isn't that the truth? I mean, in my own family, you know, when I, when I was growing up, my mother's family and, and uh, my uh, brother's son and his children and all of those, I looked around one day and I thought, you know, I feel like I've been from another planet. I wouldn't have chosen any of those people to be in my life, so help me. You know, friends you get to choose. Family you just are stuck with, you know. But that's people who wouldn't normally mix. I was in Palm Springs one time speaking at a conference. And uh, in my room that night, we were all after the, the meeting and we had gone back and there was a bunch of us. And we were pigging out on salsa and chips and stuff. And in my room was a man and his wife from Denmark. There was a girl who said that she was a whore. She was from Mexico. And I said, that's good. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> and I was dressed like Cleopatra. I had found this headdress in the gift shop in the Riviera Hotel. And, uh, I mean, I was just having lots and lots of fun. Remember when Bo Derrick had the beads and everything in her hair? Well, this was the thing. It had beads and shells. And it was turquoise, and it was cut sort of like Cleopatra. And I did the eyes and everything. And when I talked, I thought this. Was, and when I stepped out of the room, see, I'd gone Hollywood. For God's sake, I'm in California. I'm going to go Hollywood. And so I step out of my room, and the lady across the hall steps out of the room, and she goes, huh. That is a statement of personal freedom. And something inside says, you've overshot the runway. Isn't it funny how you always know when you've gone over the end of the runway? It's like when you see the barrier lights going and you're going, oh, I've been here before. What happened here, you know? And so I'm standing there and I'm talking, you know, and I can't hardly see out from under these little beady things hanging down. And I'm thinking, but the guy and that, that woman out there look sort of familiar out there at that round table. Um, hmm. I know, but I kept on, you know, because, you know, you go a lot, you meet a lot of different people. And, and then in a few minutes, it sort of came to me that there were people standing around that looked funny standing around. And I looked out and I go, oh, my God, it's the president and his wife, and I'm here like an idiot looking like queer puppy. You know, you know, they thought it was fun. <laughs> they don't have to live with me. <laughs> but these are people who would not normally mix, you know. I mean, really, you know, but it's the solution that binds us together. And it tells you in the book, sobriety is a beginning. It's just a beginning. And see, it's his beginning. The sobriety is his beginning. It was not my beginning. My beginning had to come much later because I had to hit a bottom. I had to get where I was willing to do the deal and not just go with him to the meetings. I loved going to the AA meetings. I want to tell you, when I first came in, 
it was more fun to go to AA than Al-Anon. You know, I always tell them, you know, those little thin-lipped cookie-baking bitches, you know. <laughs> I was young. They were old, for God's sake. They must have been 40. <laughs> they weren't laughing. They weren't having fun in Al-Anon like they were having fun in AA. You go to an AA meeting, there was always lots of laughter. And I just, I really gravitated toward that laughter, you know. But it took me back, you see, I thought my goal was to get him sober, and once he was sober, to keep him sober. That's what I thought the goal was. But it wasn't. That's his. His sobriety has nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing. I can't get him sober. I can't make him drunk. You know? Now, we can make it hard as heck on somebody that's struggling. We can just absolutely do that. But we are not responsible for, for what we do, you know. Um, the main problem is in our mind. Well, there we are. We don't know why we do the things we do. How many times have you thought, why did I do that? Why did I say, why didn't I keep my mouth shut? Or you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you arrive where you're going, but you don't remember getting there. Now, are we dangerous during that period? I would think we are. <laughs> you know, now they get, uh, you know, and then my thing is with my road rage, you know. I was very, very aggressive behind the wheel. And I'm telling you, it, it doesn't take anything, you know. It, I mean, and you know, this past summer, it's so hot. You know, very, very hot. And when the weather's really, really hot, your temper doesn't take as much to get up there, too. And so this year and last year is the hottest summers we've ever had. You know, we had like 69 days over 100 degree temperature and no rain. And I'm sure y'all had some of the same or whatever. And now we're getting all the rain after everything's already burned up. But, but I, I found myself screaming at somebody. And I'm thinking, God, you haven't done this since you were a newcomer. What is the matter with you? And it's like, I don't know, but take an action. You know, don't try to sit there and figure out what's wrong with you. Take a corrective action. Once you take corrective action, then you'll find out what was wrong with you. You know, and what it was, I had gotten so into stuff, so into it, you know, and I was so into self. And don't you know, it's a plot against me to keep me from going. When you're late, have you noticed that every slow, pokey butthole in the world gets in front of you? You know why? It's their time to be out. <laughs> if you were out at the time you're supposed to be, you'd have missed them. You're the one who's out of sync. It's not them. This is their time. Now, you're in their way. Okay. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to have some fun with this. I've got to lighten up. I've got to lighten up about this. And that's when my hair dryer broke. And it occurred to me, oh, I have my own little radar gun. It's short. It looks like a radar gun. Cut the cord off. Stuck it down in my console. People entertain me. I go, beep, 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 Sometimes they pull over. Now, I have a 92 Caprice Classic, one of the big white police cruisers, see. All I need is a blue light. It's against the law. It's been real hard not to get one anyway. And then God brought this uh, state trooper into my life, and I sponsor her. <laughs> And so, I don't do that. I don't do that. But I do radar people. 
You know, and it is, I get, but what it does, it takes the pressure, the anger out of me. Because I love the look they give you. And I even do the cops. I go past them while, while they're doing you back. I told her, I told her the other day, I said, what can they do to me for radaring with a hairdryer? And she said, well, they'll just probably put you away for a psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> talks about it in the big book. That very same thing. Oh, it talks about jaywalking. You ever read the book where it talks about jaywalking? You know, I used men, credit cards, relationships instead of the jaywalking, but it was all the same, you know. You know, there's a story about, you know, you go down the street and you fall in the hole. So you get pick yourself up and you go down the street and you fall in the hole. And you pick yourself up and you go down the street and you look for the hole and you fall in the hole, but at least you know the hole is there. And you keep doing this, and then all of a sudden one day you think, oh, I go down the street and I know the hole there and I go around the hole. But the day you get well is the day you go down another street. Instead of keep going back to that known deal, you know. And that's what I did all my life. And in order to overcome that, I had to have that power greater than myself working in my life. I had to have God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And there's times I have no mental defense against thinking, thinking. Something happens, and immediately you play an old tape. This is just like, and then all of a sudden you go back, you pick up those old feelings, you bring them into the right now, and now you've really exaggerated the situation that's happened now because it has nothing to do there. It's just that old tape, you know, and that re-feeling of that resentment or whatever, and it just all comes flooding back. And you have no mental defense against that. So your defense has to come from a power greater than you. It has to. You see, your mind's a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go in alone. And my sponsor tells me all the time, your thinking's broken. Try not to use it so much. <laughs> but you get exact directions for recovery. Not theories, not maybe, but specific things to do and not to do. You know, it's a manual for living life on life's terms, and it challenges you and if you don't think you need the program, go out there and try it on your own, by yourself. Go out there and just try some controlled thinking, you know, whatever, you know. And that's the retreads. You see them all the time. That's what we call them in our group. Those are the people that come into the program, seemingly get some better, say, it's all so wonderful, they're really active for a short period of time, or maybe even four, five, six years sometimes you see it, and then you don't see them at the meetings anymore. You wonder what happened to so-and-so, and you call them, oh, well, I'm busy, I don't have time, but I'm doing fine, you know, I've got those principles, and man, I can do those steps, and I'm just doing fine. And if they live, we get them back. And they don't look too hot when they come back. And it's real hard for them to come back. I always make them real welcome, because it's really hard for someone who's going to have to really, their ego's going to be smashed, and their self-esteem when they come back, because see, they're going to have to admit they were wrong. And that they need us again, you know. But I'm real grateful for them because every time I look at one of them, I think, it's still crazy out there. They're doing my time, so I don't have to go out there. And I'm real grateful. But, you know, every once in a while you lose one. And I lost the woman I sponsored for 10 years last year. You know, she's going to do it in church now. She's going to be And I'm thinking, oh, that's fine, that's fine. And I wish her well and I pray for her. But I don't see her anymore. I don't see her around with the same people anymore. I don't see her doing things. And I heard that she was real unhappy on her job. She works for the church. So, I don't know. 
I don't know. But all I know is I still love her and I'm still hoping. And you know, we have prayed people in down on before. And so I'm still trying to pray her back. You know, God just send her back. Just send her back. And God will in his time if he, if she's willing. You know, those kind of things. It just takes a while. I had to learn the proper use of my will. And that is to turn things over. You see, I didn't know there was a difference between being religious and spiritual. And it was when I read the chapter of Agnostics that I began to understand. I just thought I didn't believe in God, and I found that we have our own God, not someone else's conception of God. And see, I guess that's what I had had all my life, was somebody else's conception of God. And the conception that I had didn't work for me. And I was mad at that. And so it's really important that I understand not so important that I understand God as much as that my God understands me. You know, and I had to find that kind of a God. And, and um, when I began that search, my sponsor told me, she said, God can be whatever you want him to be. And so for a while, God was my sponsor. You know, I would call her, and she was the final place on anything and everything. I still call her, and I would weigh very much what she says. But I also have another source now. And then after that, I had the group that was there. And I could ask, you know, because two minds, of course, when you put too many Al-Anon minds together, you see this at district and area, and you know, when you get too many, isn't it always funny, you know, how many people here have been to an area assembly or a district meeting, you know, you can spend three hours deciding over which side of the room is going to be smoking, the other one's not smoking. It's always been a source of amazement to me. But I had to start the process, and I had to be willing to reach out and to look for that. And you know, it was one of the stories in the book, is how we came into that phrase, God is I understand God. There was a man who did not believe in God. He was an atheist. And uh, he said, I can't do the deal if the steps have to be written that way. I can't do the deal. And so he went on, and what he understood God to be was a force, not God as they were thinking of it. And he said, please put that in the steps. And it was because of his insistence that we have that. And I think that's one of the most valuable things that we have. Because if you tell people they've got to believe a certain way, we would lose so many people. Allow them to come to their own. And uh, I've had a lot of people that uh, understand God a lot differently than I. And it's not important. I sponsored a girl one time that she said that her higher power was that spaceship from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I said... She said, what do you think about that? I said, whatever. You know? And so one day, uh, the ship landed. And then after a while, God walked out. It was okay, you know? I mean, there was a process for her. She had been raised in a very strict religious school, uh, and, and she had a thing against religion. And when she heard the word God, that's what she thought of was religion. And so, it, 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 the minute you begin to be willing to believe, you're on your way. All you have to do is be willing, you know. Do I believe or am I willing to believe? I tried. I was afraid, but I tried. You see, the thing of it is, in my mind, I didn't ask God for help because if there be a God and he cares about you, if you ask for help and he doesn't answer, then you know it's all over. So if you don't ask, there's always the chance that he's there. But if you ask and he doesn't do, then he's not there. That was my crazy thinking. And I had to, to to take a chance. And one day it happened. It was just real simple. I was just driving home. My car was having major problems. 
and um, it would turn itself off. Just drive down the road and turn itself off. And when your car is all power, that means your brakes don't work too good, your steering don't work too good, nothing's been working too good here. And the guy told me at the shop that it needed to have his carburetor cleaned out. He said, what happens is trash is getting in your carburetor and it's clogging the engine and it, it keeps the gas from getting there and so it just turns itself off. And he said, you need your carburetor rebuilt. I said, can't afford to have a carburetor rebuilt. My husband's lost his job. He's just gotten sober. We don't have any money. I, all the financial stuff is on me. I can't afford it. And he said, well, take a little bottle of gasoline and take off the breather and pour a little bit of gas in there. Start up. It's going to backfire. Maybe that'll knock the trash loose and you can drive a while. And I was doing that. And start off, I was doing it like once a week. And I was doing it two or three times a week. And I was doing it a couple times a day. And I was getting on my nose. You know, I began to smell like a gas pump jockey. And uh, that's in the days before we pumped our own gas. You know, it's been quite a while. But anyway, so that day I'm driving home and my car stopped three or four times that day. And I had to get out and do that. And I always loved the ridicule I got from the male population as they would drive. That was the one that looks like, you know, but she's doing ha ha you. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. But on that particular night, I'd gone by to see my mother, which is always good to make you want to cut your wrist. And uh, I left her house, and I was going home, and I was depressed, and I was upset, and my car stopped again. And I said, God, I am so tired. I am just so tired. I tell you what, this is Miracle Thompson. I live at 409 Healy Street, North Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to pour the last disc gas in there. And if you be a God and if you care about me, all I want is I want to go home. I'm tired. And the reason I gave him my name and address was I didn't want him to make sure he wasn't mixing me up with somebody else. That was as sincere as I could be. And so... I got in there and I tried to start the car and it backfired and it chugged and chugged and quit. And I said, God, you ain't going to get there like that. It's not going, I'm trying now. I'm reaching out. I'm really trying here. So I turned and tried again. It started, it was chugging and chugging. And I said, God, it's not going to get there like this. It's going to have to do better than that. And with that, the engine just smoothed right out. And I drove home. And I got out of my car and I knelt down by the side of my car. And I thank the God for getting me home. That was my first real let go and let God trust that God would do something for me. And I walked in the house and the miracle had happened. And I didn't know it, but the miracle had happened. And when I got into the house and there was a phone call from a girl I'd gone to school with, hadn't seen in years. Her daddy was a top mechanic for a Chevrolet company. And he was retired and she said, What's been going on with you? And I was telling her about my car and all this stuff. I wasn't telling her about the God stuff. You know how we are, you know. Hmm, I want to do that. I want her thinking I'm a religious freak or something. <laughs> and so uh, she said, well, why don't you call my dad and have him fix your car? And I said, well, I don't have any money to get the car fixed. And she said, well, my dad would let you pay it all. And I said, you reckon? And she said, sure. And so... I called her dad, he brought a wrecker over, fixed my car, and I paid him off. Little at a time. See, the minute I took an action, God kicked in and began to do. Now, God had been doing it in my life all along, but I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware because, see, I wasn't ever giving God my cooperation. It makes a difference. 
He prayed to me. It's sort of like having muscles. Muscles are there in your arms and your legs and what have you, but they don't do you much good if you don't exercise them because they're not strong enough to do a lot. But the more you exercise them, the more they're there and the stronger they get. And in the very beginning, God did a lot of really, really, really neat things. Not that God doesn't do neat things now. But I was in such a God-awareness mode. It was so new. And it's like God had to do something for me every day or two. I'd forget that God was doing stuff for me. You know, now I have faith. I believe it's going to happen. And I can I can wait in the process. Before, if I said, I'll go, let, go and let God. I mean, I said, okay, God, get ready. Here it comes, because I'm going to give it to you. But you better, you better do something really quick. Or if you don't, I'm going to take it back. Because that was the best I could do. And when I heard people sharing what God did for them, what they couldn't do for themselves, and I began to be willing that God would believe, I began to believe that God would do those things for me, then my awareness began to change. And my awareness of the presence of God today is the most powerful reason to have faith. Because I've seen the results. It's easier to have faith when you've seen the results. You know, seeing's believing. You know, it's just easier. And it says, came to believe. It doesn't say come to have faith. It says come to believe, you know. And either God is everything or he's nothing. Either God is or he isn't, you know. And I had to make a decision which way I was going to go. And I heard a guy at a meeting one night, and he, he made a lot of sense. He said, you know, if I believe there's a God, and you come to find out there isn't, what have I lost? But if I believe there isn't, and there is, then I've lost everything. Now, are you willing to take that kind of chance? I thought, no, no. I'd rather believe there is, you know. And so, spiritually, some grow spiritually slowly and others go faster. But it comes to all who seek him. That's a powerful statement. That's, that's a promise in itself. God comes to everyone who seeks him. And the book describes the different kind of drinkers. Well, now and on, I found we have different types of thinkers. The moderate one, the one who's able to accept life on life's terms, pretty good. You know, there are some of us that seem to have a better handle on it. The hard thinker who can moderate his behavior, even if difficult at times. Those that can manage to keep their mouth shut, you know, occasionally. Then there's the real Al-Anon, who's lost control of their thinking and does incredible, tragic things trying to control his situation. He's irritable, restless, and discontent, and fearful, and asks himself, why'd I do that again? And it says, the problem seems to be in my mind. Now, see, all my life I had been this student of logic. If you can read it in a book, all these facts and stuff, if I can read it, man, I can do it. But I couldn't do it, you know. And one of the things that I found is that I really hate my defects when you have them. <laughs> when I see something that you're doing that really irritates me. That's when I, there was a guy that came to our meeting, bless his heart, and uh, Larry just got on my last nerve. I mean, I'm telling you, I, when Larry opened his mouth, I go, oh, thank God I've been in long enough I keep my mouth shut. But I'm sure my eyes did the dance, you know. As one of my pigeons says, he's getting the look that's the look that says, shut up, you know. And Larry would irritate me. And so I would be walking in the morning, and one morning I'm walking along, and I said, God, what is it about Larry that I have? that irritates me so much when I see it in Larry. What is it about Larry? So I'm walking, I walk my three or four miles, and all of a sudden I went, Oh no, not that! 
Larry is an opinionated asshole. Oh, no, not that one. Okay. I went to the meeting that night, Larry. You know, Larry didn't bother me. It's because I accepted the me and Larry. You see, I accepted him, defects and all. I accepted him just like God does me. And you know, Larry Larry was one of those that had to go out in this program. Larry was diabetic and he was in denial about his diabetes. And he had had polio as a child. And uh, so he had a leg that was in a brace and it was very atrophy. And he would swim every morning. He was a master swimmer. But he didn't regulate his diabetes and they found him in the bottom of the pool last year. You know, it's such a waste, such a waste, such a... He was a fine man, but there it is, you know. But for a God or a power greater than me did impossible things for me. See, that's where my faith really began to build when I began to see the impossible happening. You know, it started early on in the program, and then it, it happened all the way through the program. Like um, when my sister was in the hospital, and I was staying there with her all the time, that's a very expensive proposition, eating in the hospital, paying parking, all this kind of thing. And uh, we have a, an annual yard party at our house. And it was getting time for the yard party. And I was thinking, my God, I've spent all this money and I don't have money to, to get this stuff for the yard party. I wonder what I'm going to do. It's pouring down rain. I go to the post office. I get out of my car. I look down. There's a dollar bill laying in the, in the puddle. I pick it up, throw it in the car, go on in, do my deal in the post office, come out. Later, I'm going to reach over there to get my dollar bill. And it's a hundred dollar bill. And I went, well, God, I would never talk to look for it at the post office parking lot. That is me, you know. And I went to Sam's, got it, and everything at like seven dollars of buying everything I needed for the thing. I said, well, isn't that timely? Isn't that neat? And isn't that God? You know, those little miracles, you know. Uh, I, I, I was um, given a computer years ago, and. Uh, one of the girls I sponsored, her boyfriend, gave me his uh, old computer, and it just threw me to death. And then all of a sudden, then, uh, here a few years ago, I thought about, oh, there's email, there's the Internet, there's all that stuff. And this was an old computer, and it wouldn't take care of all that. And so I'm in this big dilemma. It's about this time of the year, you know, Christmas, and I'm telling J.D., I think I need a computer. I need a bigger, faster, whatever. You know how we are. <laughs> you know, once you get into it, it's <laughs> And he said, well, what kind do you want? I said, I don't know. I have a clue. I have a clue. I said, I've been given this old one, and I know what to do with this old one, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even know what to go look for. And he says, well, why don't you do some research? So I said, okay. So I began to go to every computer store. And my God, will that drive you crazy. You know, because everybody tells you something different, you know. And the, the, the keywords, you know, are IBM compatible. And, uh, you know, whatever that meant. And uh, ram, ram, rum, mom, who knows. You know, I mean, they've just got all this other stuff out there. And they, just give me the, just give me the keyboard. I know what to do. Just give me the keyboard. And so, uh, finally I made my decision. And I, and so I said, God, this is what I'm going to do. Tomorrow I'm going to go get this computer. Unless you show me something different. If I'm not supposed to, show me in a way I can understand. Because that's the way God and I sort of operate, you know. I'll tell God, you know, look, I want to do your will. But I need to know what that is. Now, it looks to me like this is what needs to be done. If this is not it. Shut the doors, do something, show me that it's not working, you know. Bless it or block it, you know. So, way to go. So, I'm sitting there and I told J.D., I said, I made my decision, the phone rang. I pick up the phone, this guy says, 
this Miss Thompson? I said, yes. He said, well, this is Santa Claus. I said, really? He said, yes, I live in South Dakota. I said, really? I thought you lived at the north that we have, and uh, you won't get it right for Christmas. It'll be a little later because of the amount of orders we have, but uh, it's coming your way, complete with printer, color printer and everything. I said, are you serious? And he said, yes. And I said, well, who are the elves? And he said, they prefer to remain anonymous. Now, see, to me, that's God with skin on it, you know. Because I didn't know, and I got everything and more than what I, I mean, it, it just, it's been wonderful. The other day, somebody uh, that I sponsor, her husband, Bill's computers, she said, would you like a new one? No. I know how to do mine. I don't want another one. I said, I'm doing good with the one I got. Thank you very much. But, you know, that shows you I've learned to be content with what I have. Because for it meets my needs just fine. But the, the amazing thing was God sent the timing. I went on through the holidays, and I'm wondering, where's my computer? Maybe it was a joke. And on my Al-Anon birthday, my computer arrived. And they had no idea that that's when it would arrive. But see, that's the God deal there. See, that's God just saying, ha-ha, I did it again, ha-ha. <laughs> and the miracle is, I recognize it. I recognize it. Because, see, so many times God's doing things for you. That's just like... Somebody said to me, well, what has been good that's come out of this deal with your sister? And I said, well, one of the first things that I saw was when I was in the hospital and laying there and scared death while they're running these wires and stuff through your body, I said, I realized that not knowing I had a heart condition, I could have been out flying to Amarillo sometime and crapped out and never knew why, you know. I couldn't have taken that thing. And to show you, my heart doctor a couple of weeks ago says, you're doing great. You're doing great. I'm doing a normal EKGs, and that's really pretty good when you consider I failed the stress test, the nuclear test, and all the other tests. But I'm doing really good. I just wish I felt better. <laughs> but the thing about it is I began to trust. I could be calm in an emergency, and if you don't think I can trust, leave home when you don't feel good during this particular week that's not a good week for our family. See, that's the trust. You know, you have to trust that God's going to get you there, going to take care of you while you're here, and going to get you back on cycle again. You have to trust. I could be sane and courteous. I could be a, a good driver again, you know. I could trust God with my finances. That was really difficult. I don't know why anybody could have handled it, and I did. Isn't that funny? You know, God has never run up a credit card, as far as I know. <laughs> Can you hear God saying, well, I've maxed out. <laughs> Let's see what she does with that. <laughs> you know, but I found that I could trust God to take care of my loved ones because I'm here. They're there, you know. Um, it's a change. And another thing I found out, I'm a talker. Y'all would never know that. But I've learned to be a good listener. I've learned to listen. To listen to others sharing about their higher power. That has helped me so much to define and redefine and to incorporate into my concept of God. With listening to what other people and they'd say, well, my God does this or I believe God this. And I'll go, that's good. I like that. I want that. And so incorporating in, into my idea of God. And... Um, it gave me more hope and willingness to trust and try harder 
you know, so many times, you know, I forget. And if you think that I have been a spiritual giant this year, you're wrong. There have been lots of times when I have felt, you know, God, where are you? Where are you in all this, you know? And uh, like in March when uh, my beloved Voodoo, uh, he died of the same thing my sister did. He died of kidney failure. And, um, and it happened just in a period of four days. And it was so difficult. And I'm going, God, I've lost so much already. Where are you here? Where are you here? You know. And it's just one grief after another. But you have to work through those things. And you have. And yes, there's depression that comes with that. That's normal. You know, I think that sometimes we believe that uh, we're not supposed to be normal people. We're supposed to be these giants that you know uh, shoot me. I don't bleed. You know, or or hurt me. I'm not going to have pain. And that's not true. Because life continues to go on. I believe there's a God, and if there isn't, what have I lost? Like I said, nothing. I've learned that God lives inside of all of us. You know, I always look for God out there. God was in here. Didn't have to go anywhere. We come with God already installed inside. You know, it's all like a hard drive. He's already there, you know. He's not He's not something you add on later, or He's not attached. He's just waiting, and He's the most major resource that I have in my life. These ideas help me to get rid of my prejudice and encourage me to look deeply within myself. And when I took that attitude and action, I found God. And guess what happened when I found God? I found me. Because who knows me better than the one who made me? And the more that I'm in touch with God, the more I know about me. And I prefer to believe that there is a God because it works for me. And God always comes to those who seek him. Always. I saw he came, and I became whole on the inside. Those holes that were inside of me that I'd had for a lifetime, they all began to fill up. You see, my answers are spiritual because my problems were spiritual. I thought they weren't. I thought they were problems with people, places, and things. No, it was not. It was what was wrong on the inside of me. Because when I got okay on the inside, those people, places, and things got better. It's just like the day I looked at Larry when I saw what was inside of me. I knew what was inside of Larry. And I realized Larry was a sick person trying to do the best he could. And I can be exactly like him on any given day. And so there's no, there's no, there's no room in that for the criticism and the judgment and what have you. My answers were in a program of action. And I found out the how in chapter 5. It told me how to take actions that would make my life different. And there's key words, and if you're not careful, you'll miss some of them. One of the words is thoroughly. Thoroughly. It means not hit or miss, but you've got to be consistent. Doing this stuff again and again. You know, we say repetition strengthens and confirms until faith becomes natural. You keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And that's what's helped me so much is the fact that you don't have to want to do it to do it. You don't have to like it to do it. Just do it. And that's how I've been doing this year on other things. I found that principle works in other areas of my life. And another one says, willing to go to any length. It could be inconvenient. might be not what I want to do. But do it anyway. doesn't make any difference. Just do it. You know, I'm not a Nike person, but that's a good slogan. Just do it. Just some of us try to hold on to old ideas. That's doing the same things over and over, getting the same results. He says, the results are nil till you let go, absolutely. Well, quit debating and surrender. You know, nil. It, it's like if you get 50%, you think you get 50%. You don't. You don't get anything out of a half-assed try. You know, you just don't. It's not worth it. 
And our thinking is cunning, baffling, and powerful. You see, I trusted my knowledge, but I didn't have wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to use knowledge wisely. I didn't know how to do that, you know. I couldn't trust my thinking. My thinking told me to kill people. <laughs> I'm serious. My thinking did a lot of crazy things to me. You know, my thinking said, drown your husband in the bathtub. <laughs> and I said, okay. When do you want to do it? We'll just find a good time. And the time came and we did. You know, I mean, now, I mean, we laugh about that. J.D. gives tours of the bathtub now, but <laughs> people go to our home. And when we redid the home, when we remodeled, J.D. would not give up the bathtub. It doesn't have a stopper anymore, but uh, <laughs> but he'll say, y'all want to see where she drowned me? I told him, I said, well, when you uh, when I drowned you out in the pond in the backyard, you can give that as a second highlight on your tour. This is where she's going to drown me next, out there in the pond. We had a we had a lot of fun with the pond. But my thinking is, like I say, it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And the thing that motivates my thinking into that is that fear. I didn't realize how fear-based I was. I was afraid of anything and everything. I was afraid I wasn't going to get my way. I wasn't going to get enough. You know, it wasn't going to be the way I wanted it. And how I want it today may not be how I want it tonight. You know, I can be that wishy-washy. How many times... You know, my sponsor had me do a gratitude list, be grateful for what I had. One time she said, make a list of the things that you're grateful you don't have. And I said, what do you mean? She said, all those things you thought you had to have now that you don't have, and now you see why you don't have them, and aren't you grateful? And I thought about that, and I thought, yeah. We used to live in Jacksonville. I wanted to buy that house so badly. Never happened. When my landlord was ready to sell, we were renting. And when the landlord was ready to sell, his wife wouldn't. And when she was ready to sell, he wouldn't sell because she wasn't ready when he was ready. And I understand that kind of thinking. You know. And so finally we just gave up and we moved away. Well, my landlord died and they bought his house, which was next door, and made a daycare center. I am so grateful we don't know. <laughs> I'm so grateful we don't have that house. Without help, it's too much for us. That means we're going to need God and other people to help us. Without help. And see, my thing has always been, I'm independent. I am woman. I am invincible. I am worn out. You know. You know. And since my thinking was sick, I had to accept those proposals. And that's, I am obsessive, compulsive, and I don't know how to manage my own life. That's the bottom line. In other words, I'm a failure. That's the good news. That's the good news. When you can look at that and accept the fact that you're a failure in the game called life. Because now you can be helped. That as long as you think you've got a handle, you can't get help. Because you'll continue to try to do it. You know, I can remember thinking, if I got one iota of what I aimed for, it was a success. The plan worked. Even though 99% of it didn't work, I would hang on that one little item that I got what I thought I wanted, and I would say the plan worked. You know. 
No human power could have restored my sanity. And in this case, it's the thinking that will work. The thinking that works. But that God could and would if he were sought. And the third step prayer. I love the third step prayer. I say it every day. I don't know how many of you here are students of the big book. But it's God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them might bear witness to those I would help of thy love, thy power, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. You know. And then he tells you to take an inventory. Look at yourself. Now, what are the things that you're doing that are the stumbling blocks? What are your assets and liabilities? In other words, what's the truth about you? The good, bad, and the ugly. You know, what is the truth about you? Because until you have the truth, you can't do it because the truth will set you free. That's not just a cliche. It's true. I learned I have to live free of anger. I cannot manage that kind of anger. It hurts me on the inside. It eats me up to have that kind of anger anymore. And the anger, when I had it, became rage. And the rage became violence. And I hurt myself and I hurt other people because I didn't have a healthy way to work through an emotion. You know, I learned that people who harmed me were spiritually sick and try to give them the same kind of treatment you would a sick newcomer. That's so important. You know, we have so much love and patience with a newcomer and then we'll walk into our house and just attack somebody for nothing. We forget that they are sick. You know, most of us are doing the best we can for where we are on any given day. And sometimes that's not too hot. You know, when I'm not good on the inside, when I'm not together with God, then it's going to reflect on the outside. You know, you just you just can't hide that anymore. And I have to give them patience and tolerance. And I was to avoid a t- uh, uh, retaliation. An argument. It says, we cease fighting everything and everybody. And my God, give me a cause. You know what I mean? I'll go. You know, it's like my sister used to call me when she'd have something she couldn't. Uh, she, Dorothy hated confrontations. And I thrived on confrontations. And she'd say, I've gotten this bill. And they've charged me for four times for this same thing. And I never did it. And would you handle it? Yes. <laughs> give it to me. By God, I'll get it straightened out. And I go into this straightening out frenzy. You know, I call them, I'll go, you know. I'm the kind of person, I've done this before, walk into Dillard's. I didn't get waited on soon enough. I'm standing here two, three seconds. Nobody has come over to me and said, may I help you? I go, get on the escalator, go up to the manager's office. I'd like to get something in the such and such department, but I can't get anybody to wait on me. So the manager comes down with you, you know, and you create a scene, get a person in trouble just because you... Wanted to get snappy service, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's hard sometimes to get out of that. And like I say, the hardest place I've found to work this is in my own home. And I think it's easier to do it in the Al-Anon. It's easier to do it out here and there because I haven't got the, the, the wreckage. You know, there wasn't all that wreckage from, the, from all those years of drinking. And even still to this day, those old thinking and those old tapes are hard not to do. And you've got probably more damage to your family and your loved ones. And so, you know, it's like you can do it differently 15 times and then you go back and do it like you did it before. On that 16th time, because you're human, you screw up. And that breaks the trust. 
And then there, you know, and then that starts that chain again. So I'm always going to have right work to do. And I found that I have to, more than give J.D. the right to be wrong, I have to give him the right to be right. That, you know, I have to cease fighting with things over him, with things with him because it hurts our communication and our relationship. J.D. just told me before I came over here and I, he said, I can't hardly stand it. The house is so lonesome when you go now because without any, first time in over 16 years we don't have a baby at home. And I told him, well, I'll be home soon. He said, you know, I was thinking about something today. We very rarely fuss and fight anymore. And I said, well, we've had a lot of other more important things to do. And he said, I think we've learned that we're both real important to one another and that we love each other and that people who love one another don't fuss and fight with one another. And I said, I believe you're right. I believe you're right. Because, you know, one of the biggest fights that I had with him was over that water garden that he loved. He wanted a water garden. He talked about it for a couple of years that he wanted to put in a water garden. I said, well, what are we talking about here? And he said, well, I was thinking of something maybe about mm, 6 by 12 or, or whatever and uh, a couple of little plants and maybe a little water fountain in the middle. And I said, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And then one weekend I was gone. <laughs> Now, you know, he has a disease. Bigger, better, more is better, you know. And so when I come back, I get up on Monday morning, and my house is a river of mud. And I'm going, where did all this dirt come from? I mean, there's literal mud all in my house, and it was raining. But where was the mud coming from? Well, it was coming from the dogs going in and out the pet door. But where were the dogs getting in the dirt? And I went out, and there was a swimming pool in the backyard. I mean, five foot deep, the pond, yeah, and it was supposed to be 18 inches deep, but he got carried away. And when he had all that dirt, he didn't know what to do with it, so he decided to spread it all over the whole yard. And maybe I wouldn't notice it was gone. You know, he's not in the real world either sometimes. And so the dogs had gone out, there wasn't any place in the yard for the dogs to even walk that they weren't going to get mud. So the whole house was covered in a river of mud. And I had just uh, had the house, um, the professional cleaners come in with the carpet and the furniture and all like that, you know, at Christmas. And this was February. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I was, ju- I just went ballistic. And so I'm going to kill him. 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 And so I called my sponsor and she said, we've been here before. <laughs> and I said, I know. And she said, how long before he comes home? I said, about four hours. She said, maybe enough to save his life. And so she told me to, to get out of the house, take the dogs, get the dogs bathed, get her out, let the stuff dry. Because you can't get wet mud up. You have to let it dry. And so when he came home that day, I had the dog out in the front yard because they couldn't go out in the backyard anymore. I had them on these leashes and I'd been taking them in and out about every 30 minutes not knowing how often they go because they go on their own. And he said, what's the matter? I said, go in look at the house. And then give me the solution. And when I went in, he was sitting at the bar with his hands like, oh, God, oh. I said, God ain't going to save you. I'm going to kill you. He said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I said, what possessed you? He said, well, I just decided I wanted it bigger. And I said, you never mentioned you were going to put it in this way. No, I didn't want to tell you. 
And see, that, that was another thing that irritated me. I'd been left out of the loop. I lost control. Lost control. And so uh, the water garden was a bad thing. And everything that went with the water garden was bad. And I told him, I said, it's too deep. It's dangerous. I said, if the dogs fall in, they'll drown. He said, they can swim. I said, not forever. I said, you know, you go in, you swim, but when you when a dog's in a lake, they can walk out. The water graduates, you know. It's not just, boom, off the deep end. I said, the dog will drown. And I said, they can't swim and then propel themselves up out of the water. That's not going to happen. And so we, we reached an impasse. And so we fought about it for several months. And then finally I had to come to a realization that this was his dream. It was different than my dream, but I have to allow him the right to dream. And I was wrong. And I told him I was wrong. And uh, anyway, so now, you know, we work together. You know, and we've, we've laughed a lot about the water garden. He's got it real pretty, actually. has a waterfall on one end, a fountain on the other, and all these plants. And he's got a bunch of rocks and things from all over, my rocks, that I gathered <laughs> all those years. That was my contribution to the the water garden to keep the dogs from jumping in and it was the rock wall around it and now we have a big natural rock bench and now behind it we have our little dog cemetery now and uh, so we go out and we sit and on the bench and we listen to the water and we talk to our babies you know uh, but you know when I became willing God decides to wherever possible and because uh, I had to make an amends for that and the way I make amends for that is being kind to him and being supportive about his water garden. And I couldn't help but get tickled because uh, before last he was out there cleaning it out in the spring of the year to keep it from becoming slime city. And of course you have to get in it. You know, it's pretty deep. You know, you got to get in it. And so he's out there and he did that while I was gone. And he told me, he said, he looked sort of mangled when I got back and I said, what happened to you? And he said, well, I was cleaning out the water garden. And he said, and I got in, and it was so slick, I couldn't get out. <laughs> he said, I stumbled around, stumbled, but he said, it was just so much stuff in there. I was so slick, I could not get out. And I said, well, how did you get out? He said, well, I was there till I pruned. And he said, and I started praying. I said, God, am I going to have to be here all weekend? So she or somebody comes over and helps me out of the garden. And he said, I need some help. And he said, God sent some help. And I said, what was that? And he said, across the pond came a snake. He got out. He, but he's mangled on the rocks, but he got out, you know. <laughs> talking the talk is easy and walking the walk is hard, but it's the most rewarding. It's helped me do healthy relationships, and I've learned to go with the flow a lot. I've learned a lot of love and tolerance. It says we cease fighting other people. You learn about prayer and meditation, you, and you talk to God and listening to God in order to receive your good orderly directions. And that the failure, I found today that failure to enlarge my spiritual life is like planning a relapse. If you don't keep working on your spiritual growth, you know, we don't maintain very well. There's only one way to coast, and that's downhill. I have to spend time with God if I want to know God and understand what my job is. What I'm supposed to do, all I have to do is show up and ask God, what do you want me to do today? How can I be of best use today? And step 12, as it says in the book, helps me uh, to practice all the principles in all my affairs. 
and how do I carry a message? You know, I, I never knew what my purpose was in my life. Do you ever wonder what, you know, is this all there is? What is your purpose? You know, it tells you very, your purpose is to be of use to God and your fellow man. For the first time in your life, you have a purpose. And it helps me through the sponsorship, which we'll talk about tomorrow, because I have to remember that people are ill. I don't want to be an evangelist or reformer, and I just try to be helpful and don't try to force a change. I just have to be a maximum helpfulness. And there's the chapter 8, To the Wives. Now, this was written in 1939. It describes the hurtful things that we do trying to stop an illness. It's real good. It's a real good chapter. It gives a lot of do's and don'ts to help in your recovery. It explains that some people can't quit drinking no matter how hard they try. You know? And I think it, it taught me to be grateful that I was not the one that had that disease. Can you imagine what I would have been like drunk? It talks about our fears. It talks about our embarrassments. And they are just to try the 12-step program. And you remember in 1939, Al-Anon hadn't happened. And they were encouraging us to work the AA program. There was no such thing as Al-Anon. And since we all got sick together, it just made sense to all get well together. And the family members were invited to the AA meetings in those, old, in those early years. It was a family illness. The family afterward gives me lots of good actions to take and emphasizes the need for tolerance, understanding, and love. And it says, learn from your past. Learn from your past experience and that of others. It teaches you not to keep secrets and that the fellowship is a good place to be able to bring the skeletons out of the closet. I remember I had so much guilt and I was so afraid somebody was going to find out about all that violence that I had done. And we had this little old lady that was in our group. And uh, Louise was from Oklahoma originally. And her husband had been sober 30 years at that time. And just a sweet little grandmother type lady. And she says, and I love to take this cord and string it across the top of the steps. She said, we lived in an apartment house, and I think when Walter comes home, he'll trick and break his damn neck. <laughs> and I thought, God, I love her. <laughs> and another one, she said, when Jack was drunk, I'd take a baseball bat and beat on him. He never remembered. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. But you see, it was when they would share those things that he gave me permission to get rid of those secrets. When we share those things within ourselves, it brings it out. And it also talks about anonymity, that I'm to tell my story, not other people's stories. It talks about the sensitivity of an alcoholic. Well, I can be just as sensitive, you know. It talks about the alcoholic being people of extremes. And aren't we the same way? You know, it talks about living in a, being immature and living in a world of make-believe. That's what I, that's what denial is all about. Denial is make-believe because it's certainly not reality. And so now we have a greater sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We can have our head in the clouds as long as our feet are firmly planted on the ground. And one of the things that it says that just made me happy all over is we are not a glum lot. We insist upon having fun. You know, and if it hadn't have been fun, I wouldn't have stayed here. It says cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. You know, what more could you want? 
You know, it says avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery. Now, boy, you can do that if you get there and start going about your your sorry lot in life or what you didn't get or what you want. You know, the chapter to the employers gives helpful suggestions in working with others, regardless if it's an employee. I found it helps in sponsorship. And a vision for you explains all about the fellowship. You know, the fellowship became the substitute for liquor in my husband's case. But the fellowship became a substitute for my obsessing, my bitching, my complaining. In other words, I got to where people were and we had fun together. To me, I loved it before styrofoam. <laughs> you ever think about how much fellowship you've lost because of styrofoam? Because in the old days, we used to wash the cups. And when you'd stand there washing and drying and putting those cups away, you had a meeting after the meeting. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. It gives us hope when it talks about more will be revealed and the answers will come if your house is in order. You know, It's just telling you, as long as you keep yourself spiritually fit, God will show you what you need to do. And you must continue to have spiritual growth. And it gives you ways to do that. You have to keep working the steps. You don't just do it once and stop. You do it again and again and again. Because if you're not going forward, you're going backward. And then it says, We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. Now, I hated the word trudge. But did you know in the 1939, the definition of trudge was go forward with purpose. It wasn't bad. You know, and think, when I think of trudge, I think of like walking in mud barefooted where you go, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not it. It was walk, going forward with a purpose. And so then trudge becomes good. And people say, well, what's the object of the book? Is it to get the alcoholic sober? Absolutely not. The book tells you it's to enable you to find a power greater than yourself that will solve all your problems. That's the purpose of the book. It didn't have anything to do with drinking at all. Isn't that a surprise? And that's why the big book's mine. It's a manual for living. And when I forget what to do, it's right there reminding me one day at a time as I pick it up and follow the directions, I get the results. And if you're not familiar with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, try studying it with an open mind and try to relate and find you on those pages. And if you are like me, my friend, you have got a great journey ahead of you. Thank you.